Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be considering verses 12 through 26. That's Acts chapter 1, 12 through 26. You can find that passage this morning either on page 1069 in your Pew Bible or on pages 6 through 8 in your journal copies of Acts that are still available to you on the Fellowship Hall table. One of the themes that Luke has been developing here very early on in this, in this account of the Acts of the Apostles as he has been inspired by the Holy Spirit for this work, that God is sovereignly directing the course of history and bringing his perfect, glorious, life-giving plan of redemption, the gospel, as a means, the means, of calling his servants home into the kingdom of God in and through the person and work of King Jesus. And as I've said, it's one of the many reasons that we need to be very clear here that though Luke is certainly a masterful historian, he is much more than just that. See, this book, the Acts of the Apostles, is much more than just a history. Luke is also very much a theologian. You've probably seen why I would say that so far in our look together at this book of Acts. He's not merely recounting historical narrative as data here. He is doing that, but he's doing far, far more than just that. He is interpreting that data through the lens of the revealed Word of God. More specifically, through the lens of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ at the very center of God's revelation. Indeed, he sees him at the very center of all things. He is at the center of God's grand purpose in all of history itself. And beloved, I can't stress it enough, we need to know that. We need to embrace that. We need to live our lives in the here and now in the light of that revelation. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian. And as these apostles, these other followers of Jesus Christ are, sort, are sorting out all that has transpired since his death and his resurrection and now his ascension, they need to see Almighty God's sovereignty and His providence in all of it. God is moving the history of His creation in exactly the direction that it must go. They need to not only see it, but they need to trust God in the process. It's why all that has transpired so far in just the first 11 verses is so wonderfully encouraging to us. 
Beloved, have you felt that way? Have you felt encouraged by this opening of the book of Acts? This is tremendously encouraging to your faith if you see it. Do you know why I would say that? Look at what God has done so far. These apostles, undoubtedly, all flawed men, right? We know at times they have been scared men. They have been afraid. We know they're certainly stressed out about everything they've seen. They are afraid. At Jesus' death, these were the men who scrambled like cowards. They had become despondent. They had become confused that Jesus is being no more. And what did God do? Did he lecture them? Did he give them a stern look trying to convey his absolute disappointment with their behavior? No. He picked them up. He had mercy on them. He graciously and mercifully opened their eyes to the truth that was transpiring all around them. Perhaps you wonder, well, how so? Well, Luke tells us that he appeared to them after his resurrection. He had presented himself to them as very much resurrected from the grave and alive for some 40 days. And it was not just through a vision of himself that he did so. He was with them. He walked with them. He broke bread with them. He continued to teach them and prepare them. Luke tells us that he spoke to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He took them through the Holy Scripture. He showed them through Moses and the prophets all things about himself. He was beginning to shore up precious faith within them so that they might go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, indeed, even to the ends of the he showed them that they were at that very moment standing on the precipice of a new era in redemptive history. And he began their preparations for the work to which they had been called. I want to tell you this morning, it is tremendously encouraging to me to see that. As a pastor, often it seems that the work is difficult in many different ways. It's well beyond my ability. And yet I've been called to it. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't know. How do you know you're called to it? I'll be honest. I know I'm called to it because I'm here in this pulpit every Lord's Day to speak to you about the great wonder of the gospel. And I'm not going to bore you this morning with my whole story, but I'm going to tell you seemingly impossible things had to happen for me to be here. Doing what I'm doing. Preaching the gospel. Let me ask you something at the outset this morning. Is this how you view the Christian life? This, this picture that we are forming here at the beginning, beginning of Acts. Is this how you see your own life lived under God's loving gaze in this kind of life? Beloved, we need to see it. Last week we saw that having 
completed his preliminary preparations, the king has now physically at least left his people. He has ascended. He has ascended to his throne. He did not just disappear from existence. He did not simply evaporate before their eyes. He did not cease to be. He ascended in their presence to do what he promised he would do. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, marking a new era, era in redemptive history where he would rule and reign until that time when he comes again in glory to make all things new. And he's not idle. He's working all things together for the good of those whom he has called. He is our advocate before the Father. He is our proof that life does not end at the grave. He is preparing a place for us. And as that work will now begin in earnest, he is sending the Holy Spirit, the promised helper of his servants, to his people. All things are exactly according to God's great plan. Nothing, not even the death of the King of Kings, will thwart stall or in any way alter that plan. He will see it through to the very end. Beloved, I hardly need to explain the great encouragement that ought to be to us. It means that by the grace of God, because of the person and work of King Jesus, these apostles, these early followers of Jesus, you and I for that matter, can truly now live without fear. We can trust that Almighty God has all things in His omnipotent hands. We can know that King Jesus will equip and prepare His church and that He will do it for His glory. We can live in this blessed confidence that even though we are certainly weary from the brokenness that surrounds us and even is in us on this side of glory, King Jesus will surely come and make all things new. He promised. And he comforts us in the interim as we eagerly await his glorious return when he will do exactly as he has promised. And this morning we find the apostles together with the other followers of Jesus Christ doing what they must do, being together in one accord, with one mind, teaching, praying, trusting as one body, rooted in the hope of the gospel. We'll unpack this precious moment in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ in this text that is before us this morning. So, would you please follow along as I read now from the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of God, Acts chapter 1, again beginning with verse 12, reading from the end of chapter 1, which ends with verse 26. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out, and became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and... Let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed too. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of our Lord, may he always bless you. The reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful this morning for the glorious truth of your word, and we pray that you would open your word to us through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, that we would see these things and know these things and trust these things and live more and more for your glory through the power of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Following the ascension of Jesus and this merciful rebuke of the angels, Luke tells us that the apostles did exactly what they had been told to do in verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from a mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. So Luke gives to us the place of the ascension, right? The mount called Olivet. That's where it took place. And they made what was believed to be at most about a one or two mile journey back to the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want to tell you much has been said in many of the, the biblical commentaries uh, about a Sabbath day journey. Uh, it's not where I want to spend our time this morning. I think we need to see that they did what they had been told by the king himself to do. That's important. They went back to Jerusalem for a purpose, to specifically await the fruition of the promise. It's what they did. This, this, this narrative this morning is what they did as they were awaiting the fruition of that promise. 
I believe that's where we need to spend our time this morning. We are told that they are gathered in an upper room. Tradition has led many to believe that this may be the very room that these men took their last meal with Jesus before his arrest. I can't tell you whether or not that's true. There are really no solid indicators either for that or against that speculation. So again, I'm going to tell you that the particular room that this event transpires in is truly of little to no value for us. We don't have to be caught up, spend our time on the room itself. We only know what we are told here. It certainly had to have been a large room. It had to be, right? Luke tells us that gathered together in that room are not only the 11 remaining apostles, but in a sense we see the infant church itself is there. There are no less than 120 followers of Jesus Christ in this room together. There are men and women together. Jesus' family is there. We have here the last mention of his mother Mary. Luke tells us that she and her other sons are there. She and the brothers of Jesus, they are apparently no longer skeptics. They're no longer questioning whether or not Jesus was perhaps out of his mind for the things he was doing and saying. Probably they too have been eyewitnesses of Jesus' post-resurrection. They're there. Men, women, perhaps even children. All of them gathered together in one place. And it's interesting to note here that they did not go away to places of solitude to sort of work through these strange events and try to figure stuff out for themselves. They did not climb to solitary mountaintops to engage in morbid introspection about all these things. They were together. The church was together. They wanted to be together. They were in one accord, of one mind, Luke tells them. Unified with one another. And you understand that here, gathered in this large upper room, is the nucleus of the fledgling church of Jesus Christ. This is an important moment in history, isn't it? These are the witnesses to take the wonderful message of the gospel, the message of complete, total redemption in and through the Lord Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth. And their desire is to be together. Well, then we have to see it, right? I want to ask you something this morning. Understand, we too, you and I, are living in this same era of redemptive history that began here with these apostles. We too are experiencing the difficulty, even the pain that is so often our reality during this time of living in this tension between what has already transpired and what has not yet come to full fruition. This time of seeing Jesus raised and ascended in victory 
but not yet come again to make all things new. We, for a time, still have this flesh to contend with, don't we? On this side of the new heavens and the new earth, it's a time where we still experience very real brokenness and fear and worry and doubt. It's a time where we still sin, though we know better. And we do it regularly. It's a time when you and I still are disappointed with life. A time when we lose loved ones and we lose jobs and at times we lose any sense of peace. It's a difficult time. A time of sorrow at times. And these people were in the exact same situation. And they wanted to be together. They didn't want to suffer in solitude. They didn't want to go away from one another. They wanted to be together. Do you feel this way about the church of Jesus Christ? Do you long to be together with the people of God? Not only this morning, but whenever we can. The desire of the king's servants is to be together. And you'll notice it's not just to be together in idleness. This is not a collection of people in a hot, stuffy room where everyone is napping. They're not complaining about everything that has taken place to make their lives difficult. Look at what they're doing in verse 14. What are they doing? They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Again, we see unity in this group, right? They were of one accord. They were with those who were around them, and they were praying. They were of one mind. They not only desired to be with one another, but they earnestly desired to pray together. Praying undoubtedly for clarity in uncertain times. Praying for understanding in difficult things. Praying for one another. Praying for those whom the Lord in his providence had placed them nearby. The point is, they were together crying out to Almighty God living under a time of uncertainty and waiting for the consummation of this promise that was not still fully understood, they were crying out to Almighty God. All of them. Not just the men. Not just the apostles. This is not a group of professional prayer warriors. Luke tells us this was all of them together in one accord in prayer and so on. Supplication. I want you to understand, we don't have to go deep into the Greek, but the Greek here is emphatic. This is vigorous prayer. This is authentic prayer. Beloved, again, I ask you this morning, do you have this mind in you? To pray fervently, earnestly, with and for one another. I fear all too often we, we want 
each of us to just sort of deal with his or her own stuff. We get uncomfortable. Shame on us. God didn't bring us together to be uncomfortable with the fact that this life is difficult for all of us. We have to know. We have to love one another enough to be vulnerable with one another. We cannot pray for what we do not know. Can we? Prayer is not just private any more than the rest of the Christian life is private. We're not called to live out our faith in Jesus Christ in isolation. It's not how it works. Not in the Bible. A life of faith is not your own private spiritual policy or journey. This is not Lone Ranger Christianity here at the very inception of the Church of Jesus Christ. And understand here, it is before the Holy Spirit has been poured out in abundance upon the church. This prayer is driven by the knowledge of who King Jesus is and what he has accomplished these are people who have tasted of the wonders of redemption in Jesus Christ. Sinners who have been made righteous through the atoning life, death, and resurrection of their name. Restoration has begun and they know it. What is broken is being fixed. These are the recipients of the wonderful grace of God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they are gathered together to rejoice in their salvation. And they're praying. What else are they doing? It's interesting, right? We can go right through it. What else are they doing? They are teaching and learning how to interpret the scripture in light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We see it again and again. We're barely into this book. But do you see it here? Look with me at verses 15 and 16. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. You should be amazed to read that, right? You understand what Peter's doing? He's standing up. This fisherman is standing up with a depth of understanding that we can't even wrap our minds around. Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Jesus, in his resurrected and glorified body, had taught the apostles how the scripture is to be interpreted through the lens of his wonderful redemption. And so we see Peter here standing up in their midst and applying that very thing to his teaching. So he speaks to them about Judas, who was, of course, one of them, one of the twelve. How he had proved to be apostate. Peter says here, beginning in verse 17, For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry, 
Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails dust out and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called Akel Dama, that is the field of blood. Peter is reminding them of the inglorious end of the betrayer of Jesus Christ. Just as an aside, there have been many attempts by some to say, well, this does not line up with what we read in Matthew about Jesus, about his demise. Matthew says not only that Judas died by hanging himself, but that he also had thrown the blood money, the 30 pieces of silver he was paid to betray Jesus in the temple at the feet of the chief priests and the elders. That those elders then used that money to buy what they called a potter's field. And it was a place of desolation that they used as a burial ground for strangers, for outcasts, for those who died in their midst that were unknown to them. I want to tell you there's no contradiction. And I'm not going to make this any more graphic than it already is this morning. It's pretty graphic. But I trust you see, it is still very possible in Peter's description here that Judas died by hanging himself in the field that they had purchased with his blood. As I said, Peter is teaching here for a purpose. I want you to look at what he does. He now takes this situation with Judas and he looks to the word of God. And before we look at the scripture Peter uses here, we need to think about the purpose of this. The apostles have a very real problem. There are to be 12 of them. It's not a, a random number. We could spend weeks on just this. I'm not going to, but we could. There, there is so much here. There needs to be 12 apostles. Do you know why? The number corresponds with the tribes of Israel, with the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jesus says that these apostles will sit on 12 thrones with him and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. However, there are only 11. Judas will not be on one of those thrones. So what are they to do? They're at a place where God's revelation to them is unclear. So what do we do when God's revelation to us is unclear? Peter stands up and he says, in effect, let's look at this through what is clear in Scripture. Just as Jesus had taught him to do. So he opens up to them two of the Psalms. Verse 20, for it's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. I want you to think through this. Peter is quoting from two Psalms here and he's applying them directly to this situation they are in with the loss of Jesus. Judas's betrayal and his death. This really is amazing. First, he quotes one solitary verse from Psalm 69, verse 25. One verse, 
out of 36 verses in that song. Just one. And the song is a lament of King David about his enemies. And of course, we know that King David points us towards the greater king that was still to, still to come. It's not hard to make the tie between King David and King Jesus. Peter's doing that. And it's about the destruction of the enemies of the great king. And he's pleading for God's indignation to be poured out upon his enemies. And Peter looks at their situation in light of the unfolding drama of redemption in that psalm, and he rightly applies it to Judas's demise on a land that will be desolate. A land that will only be used as a burial ground or a burial ground for outsiders, strangers. And then he addresses what is unclear. Whether or not they are to replace Judas. And so now he 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 he, he takes what is clear to Peter from Psalm 109, verse 8. He moves from Psalm 69 to Psalm 109. Verse 8, again, one verse in 31 verses. Another psalm of King David addressing the enemies of the king. Make the top. And he's asking for the wicked to receive his due judgment. And he says, let his days be few and let another take his place. May the enemies of the king be gone. And let another take his office. And again, Peter applies it to the situation that they are in without Judas to complete their number to 12, which it must be. And he tells the people, another must now replace them. There's so much we could look at here. Time will not allow it this morning, but as is always the case, beloved. I encourage you to look deeply at this in your own time of, of personal meditation and study. Well worth the time. There's so much rich truth to be unfolded here, but for now, take just a moment and be amazed at what is transpiring here in the Word of God. First and foremost, consider Peter's working knowledge of the Scriptures themselves. It's convicting. I said he uses solid interpretation here in taking what is clearly revealed to unearth what is perhaps not so clear. But of course, that's a bit of an understatement, right? His knowledge of the Word of God allowed for him to open that Word and make clear what was unclear. Reading his own unfolding history or the, the history of God's people through the lens of redemptive history culminating in the great Savior King Jesus and his salvation through the gospel. In this case, what they were to do with the vacancy left by Judas. It must be 12. So let's bring this together here as Peter moves then from interpretation to application to action. This infant church is waiting obediently for the fruition of the promise to send them the helper of the Holy Spirit. They are of one mind. 
They are united by their gratitude for the amazing salvation sinners like them have received in Jesus Christ. And now their desire is to be together. They're not idle. Crying out to God together, they're unified in it. And they listen as Peter opens to them the word of God in light of the very situation they find themselves in. They're sitting under the teaching of the word. It sounds familiar, right? Do you see the hand of Almighty God directing the infant church in their mission to take the message of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith to the very ends of the earth? Directing them in how to live their lives in light of redemption. Directing them on how to function during this era of redemptive history where we are experiencing the tension between what has already come and what has not yet come. The era that you and I are still in today as we eagerly await the final consummation of all things and the return of our risen and ascended King to make everything new. Beloved, do you see it? What are they to do with this teaching here by Peter? They hear the word of God. They obey the word of God. And they apply the word of God. They choose two men. One of them has way too many names. It's not why he wasn't picked up, right? Three names. Joseph, Barsabbas, and Justice, I believe. And Matthias. Two men who fit the criteria, and the criteria is pretty tight. They had, to, they had accompanied the disciples all of the time that Jesus went in and out among us. From beginning, from the baptism of John until that day, he was taken up the ascended. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. I've already named them. And look at what Luke tells us they did. They did not vote. Right? This is not an election in that sense. Uh, there's no interview conducted. This really has nothing to do with whose personality best fit their leadership team. There's no discussion of this person's education, good looks, winsomeness, or proper dress code adherence. What do they do? They go back to prayer. They go back to the sovereignty of God. They go back to the truth of the gospel and they trust in the sovereign God of the universe to direct his decision. They cast lots. I don't mean cast lots, casting lots anymore after the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. They cast lots, but only after they prayed in verse 24, saying specifically, you, O oh Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two men you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. They obeyed the word of God. They were together in one accord. They were praying. They were sitting under the teaching of the word of God, seeing Christ at the very center of everything. And they were trusting in God's providence. 
beloved, this is the church of Jesus Christ. At the dawn of the era of redemptive history that we ourselves are living in. I'll ask you something in closing this morning. Clearly you see the parallels, right? They hardly need clarifying. We see them plain as day. So what's the question? Well, my question is, is this mission your mission for the church? To take the life-giving message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Be no respecter of persons. To take the truth of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners like us to the very ends of the earth. To live and function with your brothers and sisters in Christ because it's your desire. Desiring to be together, celebrating together our glorious redemption in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Praying with and for one another. Not living in judgment over one another, but seeking ways to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ before the wonderful throne of grace. My fear for the church of Jesus Christ is that we too often forget why we are here, right? We forget what life is really all about, and it's sad because we don't have a lot of time in the grand scheme of things, do we? We erect our own tiny kingdoms and we hate everyone who gets in the way of our idea. What an inglorious waste of time. It is a waste of time. Beloved, King Jesus is on his throne ruling or reigning, ruling and reigning right now. He is equipping his servants for their service in his kingdom. All that we need has been given to us in him, including the Holy Spirit, who is now shining like a beacon upon Jesus, filling his church with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what the word of God says. What a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ. This is where we should put our expectation. It's this picture that we go to to understand and to have our expectations for the church of Jesus Christ guided by the clear revelation of God and His Word. And so I'm asking you, beloved, will you join this morning in singing a joyful song to the King of Kings on His throne? with his people, your fellow servants, celebrating the service that he and his love and his wisdom and his providence has called us all to. Will you celebrate the glorious kingdom of King Jesus? Beloved, I pray that we will. Let's pray.